Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Libertarian Institute reports Putin will meet with Modi Xi this week in effort to boost Russia's ties with India and China. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, Regis Tremblay. As always, Regis, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So we've got uh, these three leaders and others meeting in Uzbekistan while talks with the Chinese president are taking place tomorrow. The trip to Central Asia will be President Xi's first international outing in two years, underscoring the special relationship between China and Russia. Uh, Regis, what, how is this being reported there? And what... Oh, go, ahead, go ahead. No, it's being reported all right. Uh Russian media, especially uh, the Russian presidential administration, Putin himself and his press people, uh, have been making a deal, a big deal about Putin and Z uh, since February 2nd. And the meetings they've had, the talks they've had, direct talks, um, it's a big deal. This is a very big deal now that India is included in this. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Russia is trying to get India and China to calm down along their common border. But what's more important is India, China, and Russia represent a large majority of the people on this planet, and their total landmass is enormous. So this is huge that Russia, China, and India are all meeting together at the same time. To me, this is another one of those uh, geopolitical tectonic moments. You know, um, one of the things I think that, uh, you know, I felt for a while that President Putin was trying to, you know, burr the hatchet, as it were, between China and Russia. And I feel that it's easier than ever now because all India has to do is look at the United States relationship. As Russia started to rise economically and become a world power, the U.S. was like, we've got to stop them. China, we've got to stop them. Clearly, India aspires to be a world power. So they have to know that if they start to rise, they got the same thing coming. So just from, you know, to look out for their own future, hopeful, hopefully for them, growth, I think they have to join this coalition, Regis. Yeah, well, uh, the other thing that's of great importance is India is also a nuclear power. And um, it, it's, it's, it's really important, uh, I think, in terms of uh, Russia-China relations to include India in this coalition. But the reports that I'm reading about India and their position towards the special intervention in Russia has been much like Turkey. Uh, they don't want to burn bridges on either side, and yet India is now coming under tremendous political, maybe even economic 
pressure with the threat of sanctions from the United States. So this meeting is of really, really critical importance, in my opinion. Talk about, from an economic perspective, the this I believe the the growing relationship with with India has really been a boon for for the Russian economy as it relates to uh, New Delhi buying Russian fertilizer as well as buying Russian energy, and in spite of the sanctions that have been imposed on New Delhi, uh, it seems as though. They're to a great degree not wanting to burn bridges, but they understand which side of the bread they're which is is buttered on, and uh, they're working in their in their best uh, financial interests as a, and trade interests instead of their political interests with the United States. I I agree with you 100. Uh, percent You know Russia has dramatically increased its exports to both India and China, and I might add, at discounted prices. I've heard that India and China are are also reselling that gas Mm -hmm. to the West for a profit. (laughs) (laughs) This is incredible, really, when you think about it. Now, what I'd also like to mention, uh, the importance of this meeting, Uh, it's, it's economic. Uh, and it's all about economics. Uh, I've, I've tried to make the point in, in recent shows that I've had that this conflict in Ukraine not only is a direct war between the United States against Russia, for a lot of reasons that I won't go into now, but this is really an economic war that Russia, China, India, the BRICS nations, the, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and all of the other countries that are gravitating towards these two organizations, it's all about the economy. It's all about de-dollarizing the global economy. This is what this is all about. It's not about this turf war that's going on on the, on the playing fields of Ukraine. It's about this larger geopolitical issue that involves a changing of the world economic and political architecture. I did want to ask you, um, because we uh, haven't talked to you, so the special military operation, recently the Ukrainians made some advances, they took some towns, the Russians retreated, certainly uh, since then um, there's been, uh, you know, discussions in Moscow and we see some things a little bit different. What are you hearing, you know, you're on the ground in Crimea, so what are you hearing about what has happened and the reactions by Russian, by the Russian government and the people. What's the what's the word there on the ground in Crimea, Regis Trimbley? Well, on the ground, uh, the people are not paying a heck of a lot of attention to this. Everything coming out of the Kremlin and and President Putin is about calm down. Things are good. Uh, we're working on the economy. We're going to build resort hotels out in Vladivostok so you can go there as a tourist destination. Yada, yada, yada. Russia is losing the information war badly. They, they are not equipped to do it. They're not prepared to do it. And they've never done it, quite frankly. Now, everything I'm reading yesterday and today is indicating that this counteroffensive of Ukraine, Kiev, in Kharkov, was not a big deal and not a great victory and not a terrible loss for Russia. Here's why. Russia 
had already retreated, had moved its troop back because they no longer felt they needed them in Kharkov. What they left there was some National Guard troops, like like as a police force, really. And these people were overwhelmed. Now, Russia's response was not panicked. Russia's response immediately the next day was massive bombardments, shelling with uh, uh, guided missiles, uh, very accurate guided missiles from airplanes uh, on all this quote unquote, all Ukrainian positions. That bombardment, that shelling has continued every day since. This is what's really happening on the ground. There's a piece in the Defense Post, Russia says delivering massive strikes on Ukraine front lines. The Russian military said yesterday it launched massive strikes on all front lines. Air, rocket, and artillery forces are carrying out massive strikes on units on the Ukrainian armed forces in all operational directions. Russia has pulled back. So basically, this is this is validating exactly what it is that that you've that you've been uh, that you've been saying. And, and it's interesting. Scott Ritter made a point yesterday that Russia beat the Ukrainian army a long time ago, but now. Russia is fighting a NATO army manned by Ukrainians, funded by the United States, and that that, to a great degree, is what has caused a shift in the dynamic. Would that be a fair assessment, Garland, of what he said yesterday? Yeah. Okay. So your thoughts on that point, uh, Regis? Yeah. Well, Scott was on my show just last week, and he even went further than saying it's not a war of Russia against Ukraine, it's a war against uh, NATO. Uh, and he added that there are NATO and American and Canadian and French and German advisors and troops and mercenaries under contract to the United States uh, uh, Pentagon that are fighting in Ukraine. I maintain that this is not a proxy war. It's not a war of Russia against NATO, although that is what it looks like. This is a war of Russia, of the United States versus Russia, that began in 1945 when Harry S. Truman bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki to send a message to Stalin. In the 77 years since, the United States has escalated this war, pressure, through the Cold War, against Soviet Union and now Russia. In 1990s, uh, George H.W. Bush sent in his Harvard boys to rape and pillage the Russian economy. They almost did it. And then in the last 22 years since Putin has been president, Russia has risen from the ashes to once again be a world power. The United States simply cannot let this happen. Its whole mission, and it's been declared publicly, uh, not only in places like the Rand Report, but from politicians, from from Biden himself, that Russia must be taken down. Putin must be deposed. So when people tell me it's a proxy war, I tell you, don't don't tell me it's a proxy war. It's a direct war, a hybrid war, and and that includes military, intelligence, advisors on the ground against Russia. 
Asia Times has an article, Europe splitting on Ukraine as energy crisis looms. You know, we're seeing people taking to the streets and it hasn't even gotten cold yet. It seems to me, Regis, that at some point, the leaders of Europe, their war ain't going to be with Russia. It's going to be with their own citizens who are going to be in the street. They're going to be hungry. They're going to be cold. And people who are hungry and cold, A, are not rational and B, have been known to get violent. Your thoughts? Well, you stated that very eloquently. Um, it's already happening in Europe. Uh, in Europe, in Fr- France, they've been protesting against the government for a long time. But it's happening in Italy. It's happening in other countries. Uh, the people are now feeling the pain. And there's two things that are going on here. One, they no longer trust the representatives in the EU who are not elected. They're not representing their best interests. They no longer trust their own governments in their individual countries. And they're beginning to go out into the streets in massive numbers. 70 or 80,000 uh, in Prague, another 70 or 80,000 in Vienna, in Austria. Um, it is beginning to happen now, and they haven't even begun to feel the real pain yet. It's happening in the UK. People are confused. The Queen just died. They got Liz Trust, who's ready to push the button, uh, the nuclear button, and attack Russia. Uh, it, it is such a confusing state in the EU right now that we can see cracks not only in NATO, where countries like Germany and others no longer want to send money or weapons to Ukraine, and we're seeing cracks in the EU, where members cannot agree on a gas uh, a gas. Uh, cap on Russian energy. They can't agree on sanctions. And so we see these giant giant fissures that are beginning to appear in Europe. And you know, Europe cannot wake up, the people of Europe cannot wake up soon enough to save what they have left of their individual country's sovereignty. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times reports U.S. splitting on Ukraine as energy crisis looms. Quote, unity of Europe is a paramount concern as dividing us is one of the main objectives of the war waged by Russia, end quote, according to French President Emmanuel Macron earlier this month. For insight into this and other issues, we're going to turn to our next guest. He's the editor-in-chief at the Duran.com and host of the Duran on YouTube, Alexander Mercurius. As always, sir, welcome back. Delighted to be with you again. 
So following this Asia Times piece, they write, Macron, who has billed himself as Europe's top leader since the departure of former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, has sought to maintain internal coherence and cohesion within the EU while also maintaining functional communication channels with Russia amid the raging war in Ukraine. First, Alexander, Macron says dividing us is one of the main objectives of the war waged by Russia. Well, to me, implicit in that statement is that Russia started this fight. And one of the objectives was, in starting the fight, a division of the EU. I think, as Biden clearly stated, getting Putin out of Russia was the objective. <laughs> and NATO through the United or the United States through NATO started this fight. Second, the EU followed the U.S. down this cold, dark rabbit hole. As, as my father always told me, he said, when you make grown man moves, you've got to be prepared to pay grown man consequences. If not, you're not as grown as you think you are. So, <laughs> Alexander, your thoughts? No, I think that is exactly and completely correct. I mean, what has been happening, this, this Ukraine crisis has been brewing up for years. and. Um, the Russians have made one diplomatic move after another to try to solve it peacefully. What happened in February was that the, there was a military flare-up. Ukraine began to shell Donbass, this uh, breakaway region of Ukraine. The uh, Western powers sided with Ukraine. They refused to even consider Russia's request for security guarantees. And it became very obvious very quickly that they were trying to provoke Russia into a war, which would lead them to, which would enable them to impose sweeping sanctions upon Russia, which they were sure would lead to a ca catastrophic collapse of the Russian economy. The French uh, finance minister actually said that it was intended to destroy Russia's economy and lead uh, and lead to the overthrow of President Putin and his government. And what has actually happened is it hasn't turned out that way at all. The Russian economy has uh, uh, managed to weather the sanctions far better than anybody um, outside mm -hmm. Russia, including myself, by the way, expected. The war is dragging on and not going well, despite you know some claims that you've been hearing over the last couple of days. And as a result, all of these EU states that joined on this ride, expecting that it would all be over within a few weeks, now find themselves in an economic war, which they are themselves losing, which are making their populations uh, restive. And we've had a collapse in industrial production in across the EU. And we're having more and more stresses right across the EU. And Macron, who was up to his neck in all of this. I mean, he was absolutely one of the people who I'm sure played a role in triggering this war. He, of course, is now becoming worried that this EU uh, support for this war is fracturing. And so, of course, he comes around and he says, well, that was what was Putin's intention all along. It, rather than admit that he and his friends uh, Biden, Schultz, uh, uh, Baerbock, Johnson, all, all of them, uh, miscalculated and miscalculated disastrously.
I'm going to put two, uh, two articles together with a song, a song that I quite enjoy by the Rolling Stones, and it's called Time is on My Side. <laughs> a coin toss, Sweden's 2022 general election explained, and Italy's right heads for clear election victory, final polls indicate. At this point... It, from the it, at the the speed in which Russia can uh, seems to be able to industrial industrially produce the war material that they need for um, the Ukrainian military operation, it seems to me they can hold out for a while. It seems to me that the leaders of Europe cannot hold out for a while. If the if the Russians continue what they're doing slowly but surely, the uh, Europe doesn't have the time. And one by one, as Vladimir Putin said, the elites, the ruling elites of Europe will be a different group of ruling elites. And they can kind of sit on their hands. Talk about the elections and what you think about that, Alexander McCorris. I think it's entirely correct. And you know, you mentioned Italy, you mentioned Sweden. Another country to look at, by the way, is Bulgaria, which I know very well. There's a major political turmoil there. The government of the previous pro-EU government of Bulgaria has essentially fallen. It's disintegrating. And a new government is going to be formed, which uh, everybody expects is going to want to take an entirely different tack. So electorates are peeling away and it's important to stress it's not just electorates and peripheral countries i don't know that italy and sweden are peripheral countries but i've been looking at polling data in germany in france in italy wherever and you see more and more people are saying well ultimately why are we continuing with this economic war of attrition why are we not talking to the other side why are we not seeking some kind of deal or compromise? Why are our leaders deaf to any suggestions of compromise or of a deal? And by the way, in Britain, it's the same. The mood here is very, very bad at the moment, extremely bad and getting worse. The political class wants to keep the war going, but the people increasingly, and this is my very strong sense, are saying to themselves, this is an absolute awful disaster. For us, how can we find a way out? And they're becoming exasperated that their leaders aren't doing it. Now, as I said, in many European countries, you have different elites, you have elite conflict, sometimes the elites split. In Britain, unfortunately, the, the elite is very, very united around this policy. But even here, I think the stresses are going to grow. And as for the Russians, I think you're abs absolutely right. All the indications are that they can continue going on at this level indefinitely. I don't just think for a long time. I think indefinitely. Um, I've been looking at the Russian economic statistics. They're looking extremely strong, very small GDP contraction, falling prices, rising output. They're meeting in Samarkand, the Russian leadership with the Chinese leadership. India is also there. They've got plenty of friends. They've got access to all the technology they need. They can keep this thing going on as long as they need until they get the outcome they want. You are there in London, and winter, as, as Garland loves to say, General Winter is riding across the tundra on his big white steed. Talk about the pressure that fuel prices are putting and the cold are putting on Germany, putting on France, 
putting on London? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're putting enormous pressure. I mean, the first thing to say is that governments are trying to find solutions to this problem. Bear in mind always that they never expected to be here. Mm -hmm. They all thought back in February that long before we got anywhere close to winter, there'd be an economic crisis in Russia, there'd be hyperinflation, Putin would fall, the problem wouldn't exist. So they have no plan on how to do, deal with this. People are very frightened of these surging energy prices. I mean, you hear this everywhere. Everybody is talking about this. The government, therefore, has had to rush out uh, in Britain, and it's doing the same in Germany, it's doing the same everywhere else. It's rushing out packages, financial packages, to help people, these are households, get through this crisis. Basically, they're subsidizing demand for energy. But the problem is, the energy isn't there. Exactly. The supply, the supply isn't there. So they are subsidizing something which is already in short supply. So something has to give. And what's giving is European business and European industry, which is shutting down. They're not getting the same subsidies. They can't afford these big prices. And in Germany in particular, which is a major industrial economy, you're hearing that more and more factories are simply closing. And the prime minister of Belgium is now already talking about a spiral of deindustrialization de taking hold. Ursula von der Leyen has said that the EU will prevail, prevail over Russia. We know that Angelina Baerbock the, last week said, you know, I could care less what the German voters think. We're moving ahead. Um, it, it's kind of like the me think the lady doth protest too much in that. Yeah, exactly. They're saying to me what I hear is I'm scared this thing's falling apart. We're doing well. Everything's going to work out. Trust me, guys. It, it's all good. That's an awful shaky, scary way to say things. But I think they realize that the jig is almost up. I absolutely agree. And if, if you're talking about uh, Annalena Baerbock, of course, she made those comments about, you know, I don't care what the German people go through <laughs> or feel or worry about. She made those points in Prague. And just a few days later, there was a massive protest in Prague against these prices, uh, price increases and demands from, you know, large parts of the Czech population for the, the Czech Republic to adopt a position of neutrality in terms of the war in Ukraine. Now, that so on the one hand, you have, you know, Ursula, Annalena, <laughs> all these people saying, you know, well, you know we're going to win. Hold on, you know, let's wait until a little bit, you know, something comes up. <laughs> we'll get, you know, the oil price uh, uh, cap comes in in December. That will solve all these problems. Uh, the Ukrainians are going to win. They've just taken place to, you know, taken back a place nobody's heard of. <laughs> there's that <laughs> side of things. And then there's Macron on the other side. Uh, and we're going to get more and more of this over the next few months. So if you are demanding an end to the war, then, then it's because you are uh, uh, playing Putin's game. You're either an agent of Putin's or you are weakening in the face of Putin, who wants to split us apart and divide us all. So you're getting, you're getting these two elements at the same time. And you're absolutely right. It's a sign that they are in very, a very bad hole and they don't know how to get out of it. And what does this mean for the broader political landscape 
when you look at what's happening in Sweden, uh, the right is uh, expected to take control in Sweden. The right is expected to take control in Italy. Uh, we know how close uh, Macron came to losing to the right six months ago. Absolutely, and 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 was and wasn't able to form form a, a coalition. So yeah. w- w- we got two minutes. Is this going to have a more damaging impact politically going forward? Absolutely, it is. I mean, the, the, it, it, you can see the fracturing going on right across Europe now. They're going to try and hold the line. They're going to threaten Hungary. They're going to, uh, uh, you know, say things about the new government in Italy. They're going to do all sorts of things. But even in France, even in Germany, criticism is now growing. Now, the question is this. How do they respond? uh, Both Macron and Scholz called Putin over the last couple of days. And I, I can't help but think that both men did it because they realize that this is going hideously wrong and they need to find some kind of an off-ramp. From what I could tell from the readouts, Putin gave absolutely no <laughs> slack, cut them no slack at all. But uh, the very fact that they called Putin at all at this particular time, at this particular moment, suggests that the pressure is on. Okay. I don't think it's going to be back Macron and Schultz are going to find the answer. It's certainly not going to be Ursula and Baerbock. Uh, so there will have to be changes of government somewhere in Europe. And I have to say Germany looks like being the obvious place. And I, I can only imagine that Putin told Macron and told Schultz, hey, don't call me. Call call Joe. He's the one. You're following Joe. Talk to him. Don't talk to me. Alexander Mercurius, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Excellent. Thank you very much and delighted to be with you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. White House prepares for rail strike as congressional Democrats urge patience. The threat of an economically devastating railroad worker strike that could begin as soon as Friday is forcing a crisis response from the Biden administration and bringing 11th hour brinksmanship from the freight rail industry, its unions and both parties in Congress. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Jack, welcome back. Glad to be with you. So a work stoppage would still inflict major trauma for the economy and the president's party, threatening to leave consumers with soaring prices and bare store shelves less than two months before midterms. That means maximum leverage for all sides of the dispute, including unions seeking to wrest more concessions from the railroads over working conditions. 
How devastating, Jack Rasmus, would this be to what I consider to be an already devastated economy? Well, it would uh, uh, certainly have uh, an effect on uh, prices and uh, certainly would have an effect uh, with a lag here on uh, some layoffs because, uh, you know, industrial goods are carried mostly on, uh, I don't know if mostly, but significantly on uh, U.S. railroads, uh, particularly commodities, large commodities, um, resources and so forth. So uh, uh, it would be significant. But, you know, this is like a a critical development, uh, a threshold juncture in uh, whether labor, U.S. labor unions uh, can revive themselves. Uh, we've seen some um, some signs, you know, with organizing with Amazon and Starbucks and some other retail. Uh, but this is uh, significant here when you talk about the transport unions already unionized. There's 13 of them. They're all craft oriented. But uh, I think the big three or big five have like three-fourths of, uh, of, of the total um, membership here. Um, this is a, a, a critical threshold because it looks like uh, uh, Biden and Democrats are going to pull out all the stops to break a strike or stop one. You know, this is the party supposed to be friends of labor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and right behind it, uh, quietly, uh, it's not getting as much notice, is uh, the West Coast longshore workers who are negotiating as well and could go on strike at roughly, you know, the same time. Uh, this is the capitalist state uh, putting the screws uh, to labor uh, to prevent, uh, you know, a walkout. Here, you know, we talk about the right to strike and Biden talks about in the Democrats how, you know, they're friends of labor. Uh, well, this is a test case and it's pretty, uh, pretty obvious. They're not going to allow it to happen. Uh, the last time there was a strike uh, in railroads, it was 1991. And um, you see, you got a, you got a law here called the, uh, the Railway Labor Act passed in 26. And it has a provision in it uh, that the state can intervene, intervene and call a 30-day cooling-off period, which it already has done. And after the cooling-off period, according to that law, other workers can strike. Well, apparently they can't strike because, uh, you know, Pelosi and uh, Schumer and others, are they got this uh, legislation to uh, force them back to work. Uh, railroad workers don't have the right to strike. Uh if you look at what's happened uh, under neoliberalism here for 40 years, uh, you know, uh, both parties have devastated uh, union labor, uh, manufacturing uh, and non-manufacturing by uh, uh, providing tax incentives to send the jobs offshore, which they've done, 10 million jobs. All right. They devastated the manufacturing unions, auto steel and so forth. Uh, there's only six percent of the private sector of the uh, of of the labor force that's unionized. The private sector uh, left, and that's mostly um, uh, public employees that you can't offshore, right? Uh, and uh, transport unions that you can't offshore. You know, dock workers and uh, and, and uh, teamsters, and uh, you know the railway wor workers. Uh, so they're going after them now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to let them strike. And there's tremendous pressure being put on uh, the leadership of, of these unions. You know, the workers want to strike. They want to work out, walk out because the employers are only offering half of what the inflation has been. They want to go five, six years uh, with three and four percent raises when the inflation has been uh, double digit the last couple of years and will continue to be very high. 
Uh, and also, you got to remember, uh, they, the uh, employers, the railroad employers, want to eliminate jobs. They want these trains to run with only one conductor. Uh, what if the guy has a heart attack? Mm. <laughs> you know, what happens to the train? And ultimately, what they're after is uh, driverless trains. They don't want anybody in that cab. Uh, you know, even more serious term safety. But, you know, uh, artificial intelligence will allow them to do that. So they're trying to get rid of labor. Uh, and the workers are fighting not only to, to maintain uh, their wages, not even gain them, maintain them. Uh, and uh, protect the jobs. But you've got here the employers who are already uh, slowing down the trains. They're doing it. They're causing shortages to put pressure on Congress uh, to pass this legislation. And if they pass it, it becomes a template for now going after the longshore workers next, and next year going after the Teamsters, who are probably going to walk out against UPS uh, another quarter of a million workers there. So the big attack is occurring here domestically against organized labor, just as the empire is attacking on the offensive globally, you know, against Russia, China, and anybody else who wants to be independent, that, you know, wants to exercise their own rights as a nation, you know, workers want to exercise their right to strike. The empire is getting aggressive, and the empire is uh, putting its foot down. And uh, I don't believe this thesis that the empire, American global economic empire, is weakening. And since it is weakening, but it's responding more aggressively everywhere, globally, and now we see it domestically here in the U.S. as well. So let me ask you this, because they've got two issues here, and, 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 and here's what I'm going to relate it to. The midterms. A, the strike happens, it affects the supply chain, it affects the market, the everything, and people are mad, hurts them in the midterms. B, they squash the strike, and the institutions related to organized labor are furious. That hurts them in the midterms. It doesn't seem like there's an option for the Biden team to, um, th that you know, that's going to help them or at least break even in the midterms. But I would imagine with a choice like that, they're always going to take the neoliberal option. Well, I, what I predict is going to happen is they're going to lean on the uh, leadership of those unions, several of them already capitulated and signed an agreement. They're going to lean on them, the leadership, and uh, that leadership is then going to lean on the membership, uh, and uh, there's going to be a settlement before, before a strike. This is the way it happens. You see, the top-level leadership in the unions are kind of like middlemen. Uh, they got to represent their their members. The members want to strike. They got to go that way. Uh, but yet they got the Democrat Party friends and the politicians who uh, uh, talk them into, you know, settling. Uh, and uh, if they don't settle, uh, then what they do is, you know, crack down uh, with, uh, you know, this Railway Labor Act, which is the same for the rest of uh uh, the private sector. See, there's a special law for railroad unions because it's so strategic, but there's another law called Taft-Hartley Act in 1947 for the rest of the private sector. Uh, they're going to crack down and the threat of, uh, uh, you know, taking over the unions if they have to. And they have other tools as well. You see, in, in the state does. In recent years, uh, what you got is this uh, upsurge from below and uh, the workers want democracy in their unions. They want to elect directly uh, their leadership. And they won that right here uh, with the Teamsters. They finally got a direct election. Uh, 
Because if you're not direct elected, the same with the auto workers, uh, then uh, this leadership of the unions um, is is insulated from popular pressure. Uh, and it tends to go the way the state and the employers want in this kind of a strategic uh, conflict. Uh, when it's a, a minor conflict, you know, you're talking about uh, – you know, a local service uh, industry, you know, hospitals, or you're talking about uh, uh, local transport or something like that. Um, you know, the state doesn't intervene in this way. But when it's a strategic thing like this, and yes, it would affect uh, the supply. And two thirds of the inflation is still supply. We saw that, you know, with the statistics yesterday. Supply meaning the supply chains, global and domestic, have not really healed totally since COVID. On top of that, we've got the sanctions on Russia, which have totally uh, exacerbated supply problems in commodities. And then we got monopolistic corporations in the U.S. who are able to manipulate prices. Uh, that's a supply problem, too. Two-thirds of the inflation is supply. One-third is roughly demand. The Federal Reserve can precipitate a recession to quash demand, but it can't do anything about supply. So, you know, the politicians probably know that. I don't know how dumb they are. Uh, and uh, they see the election coming up and there's all kind of maneuvers going on by the Democrats here and all kind of um, uh, hyperbole about what they've done, which they haven't done. Uh, and um, they won't let this happen. They won't let this go go to a strike. They will lean on the leadership and they will twist their arm and there will be some kind of a settlement here, I predict. They won't let the railroad workers strike. Uh, you can see it in Congress. And watch, the Democrats and Republicans will both join ranks and gang up on the railroad workers. And this will also have a consumer impact. And in, in what I mean by that is the passenger rail lines will also be affected by this. People who use the trains, like my co-host Garland Nixon, to get to and from this show. Uh, there are certain passenger lines that have already said they'll shut down on Friday if the strike is called. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know some of the guys in uh, New York uh, local rail transport, their Teamster union, uh, and yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I just brought that up because I wanted people to understand that it's not only refrigerators and cars and 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 consumer goods that are going to be impacted by this, but people's ability to get to work will be a, a, impacted by this in in certain areas. Yeah, yeah, but I think they're going to intimidate that leadership and twist and and you know quietly threaten them and so forth, uh, and. Uh, Prevent it. That's mm -hmm. what I think is going to happen. I don't know whether they'll get away with that with the West Coast longshore workers, but you know, uh, the leadership of the unions, AFL-CIO unions, you know, are uh, have become so dependent on Democratic Party. You know, they are um, an appendage of the Democratic Party, the leadership, not mm -hmm. the workers so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they don't, you know, when it comes to embarrassing the Democratic Party, they always uh, pull in their horns. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon will join us shortly. The Libertarian Institute reports President Putin will meet with uh, Modi and Xi this week in efforts to boost Russia's ties with India and China. Uh, They are scheduled to meet this coming week. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So how significant do you think this upcoming meeting is? I can only imagine that the United States is looking at any strengthening of ties, well, with Russia and anybody, but particular with India and China that can't bode well for the United States uh, unitary power theory. You're absolutely correct. And I think the U.S. is watching this very, very carefully. uh, And they're probably seeking to, they're probably crossing their fingers and hoping nothing significant comes out of it. But the mere fact of the meeting itself is a huge signal in and of itself. And they're also probably planning some, you know, uh, counteractions as well. I would not be surprised if, uh, you know, there's an uptick in human rights violations in India suddenly <laughs> reported in the Western media. Well, you know, I think you have to put that to get put those the, Uyghurs in India. Yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, exactly. They're, they've moved to India now. <laughs> Um, and you have to put this together with um, another article, Limited Troop Disengagement on China-India Border. I've been reading this for a while. It appears to me that President Putin is working towards detente, rapprochement with between China and India, that he's basically, in order to get that foundational Eurasian base that he real, they really want, if they get those two working together, get that out of the way and, and get them to understand they got bigger fish to fry, and it appears to me that things are moving in the right direction on this. KJ. You're absolutely correct. And I think there's a couple of things to note. One is that historically, India and China have had border disputes, and those border disputes have been tied to the Chinese fear of India being allied with Russia or at the time the USSR and doing some kind of incursion or military action against China. Now that China and Russia are in very, very close uh, relationships, uh, those fears are starting to go away. And I think that's part of the reason why these border disputes are starting to uh, soften. And we see that, you know, in the disengagement of troops from uh, the uh, the area uh, of in in Ladakh, which uh, you know has recently been a point of contestation. So President Putin is going to meet with both Modi and Xi in Uzbekistan. Does that meeting place signal anything? They're not going to Geneva. They're 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 not going to Paris. Uh, does does Uzbekistan? Uh, does does that location mean anything significant? Well, it means uh, that the center of global influence is shifting to Asia. The way that the meeting places are determined is simply, you know, this is the Shanghai Shanghai Cooperation Organization, mm-hmm. and they they uh, exchange different meeting places 
uh, in the various capitals. So we're talking about, you know, Russia, India, China, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Tajikistan. And they essentially just uh, rotate uh, the meeting places in their various capitals. But the key thing to note this here is that the SEO is all about the declaration and the consolidation of a multipolar world that opposes interventionism and is built on mutual trust benefit equality. Uh, as Lavrov put it, it's the attempt to construct a rational and just world order. The key thing to notice in this meeting and in the SEO in general is if you look on a map, you can see that the countries that constitute the SEO are either as members or partners or potential partners, they dominate the entirety of the Eurasian landmass. In other words, uh, the pivot state, the, the landmass, which is the most important geopolitical center, the, the heartland, as uh, the Oxford geographer referred to it as, is being joined together through the SCO, uh, through political, economic, security, and trade relations. And that is a fundamental and profound shift in world affairs. It's an article in Reuters exclusive, U.S. weighs China sanctions to deter Taiwan action. Taiwan presses EU. Here's how I see that. The same as Ukraine. The U.S. said, oh, we don't want uh, whatever we want, wh- whatever it, you know happens. We don't want any war in Ukraine. They overthrew the government of Ukraine and they started building the Ukrainian army up for war. They started digging entrenchments for war. They did everything they could preparing for war, saying we don't want a war. They're doing the exact same thing in China. It just appears to me this. They're simply lying. Their plan is how can we sanction China? How can we bring the EU, which is done, toast, forget it? stick a fork in them, they're done. How can we drag those poor suckers in and do what we want and just make an excuse? Hey, we don't want a war with China, but we'll keep sending people over there like uh, Nancy Pelosi to try to provoke one. Your thoughts? You're absolutely correct. Um, This is essentially what is referred to as the strategy of denial, which is to pretend to prevent a war with China by triggering it. That's the fundamental hypocrisy of this approach. And, you know, there's a, the RAND report, which shows that the U.S. had planned very specifically and concretely to overextend and undermine Russia by militarizing the Ukraine. And this is more of the same, but uh, with China. So you're absolutely correct. The U.S. says that it doesn't want war but then is militarizing the situation to the max, preparing and uh, literally setting the conditions for war. It knows that these actions are a trigger for war. And going back to the first sentence of the article that Gardland just brought up, the United States is considering options for a sanctions package against China to deter it from invading Taiwan. Is there any evidence have there be, have there been any signals that China is planning, talking about, wanting to, dreaming about, hoping to, praying to invade Taiwan? Absolutely not. Oh. I mean, uh, 
all of this would be, you know, completely visible, you know, miles away and months out. And none of that is, is the fact. But what they're, as I said, what they're trying to do is they're trying to trigger war while simultaneously preparing for economic warfare against China. If you look at it, and it says um, that the sources said the deliberations in Washington and Taipei's separate lobbying of EU envoys were both in an early stage. So as if the EU doesn't have enough problems. They, For instance, I think now Germany, China is their number one, um, their, their, their top uh, trade partner. They're going to be with nothing left. They're, going, they're taking these people in the EU back to the Stone Ages. They will be uh, communicating with simple clicks and grunts soon um, based on what's happening. I... I, I I'm speechless. How stupid can the people in the EU be to let the United States turn this place into a pile of, um, you know, a a heap of dung? Your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely correct, Garland. And, you know, the people of the EU are starting to get wind of this. But as I have said before, this is not so much a fight between NATO and Russia as it is a fight between the ruling imperial class uh, and, and the people of these various countries. And yes, uh, Germany and Europe will suffer tremendously. They already are suffering. But for the ruling imperial clique that wants this war, that is doing the bidding of the United States, simply does not care about the suffering of their own people. We see that in the massive amounts of Ukrainian conscripts who are being thrown up uh, as cannon fodder. Popular resistance reports Okinawa poll results hamper plans to expand U.S. military presence. The re-election of Denny Tamaki marks the third consecutive gubernatorial election in Okinawa where an anti-U.S.-based candidate has won with a clear majority. How significant is this, K.J. No. Well, it's significant as a statement of how deeply and fundamentally opposed the Okinawan people are against U.S. plans to militarize or to continue to increase the militarization of Okinawa as if it weren't already militarized to the max. It's already 70 percent of U.S. bases uh, on a tiny, tiny, small percentage of uh, Japan's total landmass. But it also speaks uh, to the fact uh, that uh, regardless of who they elect as governor, uh, and as you point out, you know, this is a succession of governors who have opposed U.S. militarization, uh, the, the position of the Kishida government is simply, you know, quote, since it is a local government election, there will be no direct impact on national politics. In other words, just like uh, the German uh, ruling elite or the European, the European Commission, they're, going to, they're telling their people, we simply don't care. Once again, we are going to continue to expand our role as a forward base for U.S. militarization, which Okinawa has always served. Did that during the Korean War, during the Vietnam War, it was referred to as the keystone of the Pacific, and it hosted nuclear weapons as well as chemical weapons in Agent Orange. 
And I think what we see coming now with the protests in Europe and with this is what's coming is a clash. But the clash is going to be the 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 clash between empire and democracy and the uh, the contradiction that an empire cannot be democratic. And when the people wake up to realize, hey, this ain't a democracy and we thought it was two minutes. Yes, absolutely correct. It's the clash between empire and the rights of people to live a decent and humane life without being thrown and constantly being subjected to war, deprivation, and starvation. 85% of the people in Okinawa oppose this. <laughs> the governor opposes this. Uh, you know, his, 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 uh, you know, his whole life uh, is a testament to his resistance to, to U.S. invasion. And so for the Japanese government to run roughshod over the will of the people of Okinawa tells us exactly where they're situated, where they're coming from, and whose orders they are following. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And as always, we look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to the cradle, Iran to sign an agreement to become a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. What does this mean for the status of Iran going forward? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq and co-founder of Nonviolence International. He's a well-known international human rights attorney, Jonathan Kutab. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So during a press briefing, a Kremlin aide Yuri Yushakov announced that Iran will attend the 2023 Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in India as a full member. This will make the Islamic Republic of Iran the ninth member state of the organization. As we look at organizations like the BRICS and the G7, is this another indicator of a shift from a unipolar to a multipolar reality? Yes, I think it is, uh, although uh, uh, I am not sure how much uh, one should be happy uh, with this shift. I think what really has led to this shift is that the U.S. has used many of the international uh, bodies that cemented a particular world order to further its own interests rather than to further the universal values. Uh, I think that the world is a better place where there, is, where there are universal values that are respected by one and all. Uh, at one point, uh, the Western world, the European world, uh, the United States itself 
uh, was viewed as a leader uh, in that international public uh, order. Uh, but I think that they have abused it to the point where China and others are now seeking alternative uh, methods of international cooperation. Let me ask you this. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, it seems to be happening that I think on a positive, you know, there's a lot of negative, there's some positive, and that is that the change in world order seems to be blunting the effect of U.S. sanctions. We see now that out of desperation, if no, for no other reason, a lot of countries are buying oil from Iran, they're buying oil from Venezuela, and some of the countries that have been kept out of the world um, economy are starting to get an, op- uh, an opportunity to get back in. How do you see that moving forward? Uh, I, I think that that is exactly what is happening. And, and as I said, I'm not sure that that is always a good thing. I think that international trade, international pressure, international uh, sanctions against uh, governments and regimes that violate international law and international norms is a good thing. Uh, but, but when these norms are not uh, held universally across the board by everybody else, then they lose their value and they just become in interest of policies, furthering the interests of the United States and, and its friends and allies, uh, at which point, obviously, uh, those who don't fall in that category uh, will seek their own uh, alternative methods of dealing with these issues. The uh, Cradle has has an article, U.N. Rapporteur calls for removal of unilateral sanctions on Iran. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights, uh, Elena Duhan, said that U.S. sanctions have caused great harm to Iranian citizens and called on the U.S. to lift the unilateral sanctions on Iran. Talk about what does this say about the United Nations uh, taking the stance that it is taking? And do you see um, Elena Duhan's report really having any impact on on this issue? Again, uh, the the point that I made uh, still bears making again. Uh, which is there are some times when you need to impose sanctions against a regime or a country that violates international law uh, or that uh, fails to live up to universal standards. But if you use those tools only against regimes you don't like, and you totally exempt regimes like Israel, for example, and mm-hmm. its arsenal, and its apartheid policies, and its failure to uh, use international law, then the instrument itself loses its value. It's no longer universal. It's now just a tool to be used by the United States. And I'm not sure I'm happy uh, to see that happen. Of course, sanctions tend to be a blunt instrument and tend to, most of the time, hurt the ordinary people rather than hurt the regime. Uh, so sanctions have to be very selectively used and, and very intelligently used uh, to, to, to bring about change rather than uh, hurt ordinary people and uh, sometimes uh, sub, uh, strengthen uh, the regime which is violating the international principles. 
We have another article from Electronic Intifada, A Smiling Girl Killed by Israel. And what it does is it kind of details what happened to a a 10-year-old girl who was in a van. It was struck by an Israeli missile. And it just shows the brutality of the occupation, how it's kind of reckless and targets um, civilians. Your thought on the article and and, and what we can, what it shows, what we need to know from this kind of um, of information. Well, the, the, the most important thing about the article is it humanizes the Palestinians. Uh, as long as Palestinians are considered just numbers, uh, so many children killed, uh, so many civilians killed, it means very little. But when you realize that these are human beings, these are children who smile, uh, these are uh, children of God, and in a very real way, uh, and you create empathy and you create sympathy, uh, then you uh, try to work to end injustice, to end violence and war, to end uh, these attacks rather than uh, justify them. Uh, Again, this is also what's happening uh, in in other parts of the world, not just in Palestine. Uh, We need to move away from violence, and we need to see the humanity of everybody, including uh, children of our enemies uh, or those who disagree with us. Uh, we need to restore uh, the value of, of, of human beings, and that is very important. With this article in Electronic Intifada, A Smiling Girl Killed by Israel, and you talk about the fact that it it humanizes uh, the Palestinian plight in the Palestinian struggle, I think we're seeing more stories like this than we've seen in a very long time. Yesterday, we talked about a story about a woman that was forced to demolish her own home, a Palestinian woman who was forced to demolish her own home by the Israeli government instead of incurring the cost of the government doing it. It sounds like if if the government did it, they would have charged her to do it. Uh, but we're hearing there, there are seem to be a lot more stories that are humanizing the plight of Palestinians as the Israelis continue to try to make Palestinians out to be anything less than human. Are you seeing that? And is that having a positive, uh, creating a more positive impact on the international perspective on the atrocities being created that uh, are being committed against the Palestinians? Yes, I think that that is very true. And I'm particularly uh, impressed with the impact it has had on young Jewish people uh, in this country, especially, uh, who are no longer willing to just buy the lies uh, of, of, of uh, basically Zionism and the state of Israel, uh, because they can see the humanity of the other side. That gives me hope. Uh, that provides the possibility of, of, of future uh, coexistence uh, once you begin to understand the humanity of the others. Unfortunately, we also are, are facing on the other side a, a barrage of lies uh, trying to justify and trying to deflect uh, responsibility uh, for such death. There was a, an article in Haaretz today about uh, how the uh, Israeli army spokesman's office is using lying as a strategic asset to consistently deny responsibility for the death of Palestinians, whether it's Shirin Abu Akleh, uh, whether it's uh, the other American 
who uh, who was killed uh, uh, Swarka uh, the Swarka family in Gaza where eight family members including five children were killed uh, the Israeli uh, army tried to deflect attention no 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 these were killed by other Palestinians by a Palestinian missile that misfired and and later it's proven that that's not the case uh, so on the one hand Israel is refusing to take responsibility uh, for these deaths. On the other hand, uh, I think the world is beginning to recognize uh, Israel's responsibility and the humanity of the victims of its policies. We've got about four minutes left. I know you uh, wrote a, a great book called Beyond the Two-State Solution. I was wondering if you could give us a synopsis of, of what people need to know. Uh, Jonathan Kuta, Beyond the Two-State Solution. Well, it's it's an attempt to get out of the current uh, para- paralysis in the in the peace uh, process. Uh, the, the two-state solution has long been sought by people, including myself, as a possible pragmatic uh, resolution. It is no longer possible. There are about seven or eight hundred thousand Jewish Israelis living in what would have been a Palestinian state under the two-state solution. Instead, I provide a new vision of a state in which Jews and Palestinian Arabs can live together in a single state, uh, which is not dominated by 51%, regardless of whether it's Jew or Arab, but which genuinely gives each side uh, everything that they want except for exclusivity. It allows Jews to feel at home in a Jewish state, which is also Arab, and allows the Arab Palestinians to live in a Palestinian Arab state, which is also Jewish. Uh, It's it's a uh, unique hybrid form. It's a one-state solution, but it's one that is full of empathy, understanding, coexistence, and a vision for a better future for both peoples. You know, when I listen to the narrative that the Zionist government projects on the Palestinians, it sounds an awful lot like the white supremacist narrative that the American government assigns to African Americans and Native Americans and other people of color. And so I'm wondering, how can you reach the solution that you've just proposed when the Zionist government does not even consider Palestinians to be human? Well, uh, uh, you, you, you cannot accept their definition. You have to start with the humanity of all people, including the other side. And uh, Zionism has succeeded in providing its narrative, building it on fear, building it on guilt, building it on racism, and building it on an existential threat to their very existence. Uh, So the way you counter it is to say you you can have safety and security. You can have uh, your identity. You can have uh, a refuge in a a state that accepts you, but which is also shared by other people. Uh, It's an uphill battle. I recognize that Uh, because those who have privilege, uh, those who feel themselves to be superior, hate it when you talk about equality. To them, equality means giving up their domination or their superiority. Uh, But but that is the battle that we have to engage in, and it's a win-win. It's a battle 
for the humanity of both sides rather than for the domination of one side over the other. Many people who talk about the one-state solution uh, simply think once we become 51%, we'll do to them what they did to us. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a genuine, open vision for a society that respects and acknowledges both sides and that rejects supremacy, that rejects privilege for one side over the other, whether they happen to be the majority or the minority numerically. We're going to run just a couple minutes long here because I, I want to ask one more question. You, what you're saying is is absolutely right. And what's happening here in the United, what has happened here and continues to happen here is uh, the, the, the dominant culture projects its thinking on everybody else. You know, wow, if, 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 the, if the roles were reversed, white folks believe, oh, man, black people here would do to, the, do to us what we're doing to them. And nothing could be further from the truth. Understanding your moral argument. How do you deal with the economic argument? Because there are a lot of people making a hell of a lot of money off of the oppression that is being imposed upon the Palestinians by the Zionist government of Israel. How do you deal with that economic situation? Well, you deal with it through sanctions, through boycotts, through divestment. You deal with it by confronting it head on. You deal with it by prioritizing human values over profit. You deal with it through a struggle, which is not an easy struggle, uh, because the the other side has a lot to lose financially and economically uh, from your calls for equality and for your calls for justice. Uh, But that has always been the struggle. Mm -hmm. And the slavery meant uh, you lose your property. You lose the human beings who who are your slaves and, and who you bought and sold and, 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 uh, and who worked for you for free. Uh, but, but ending slavery was necessary, uh, and working for equality continues to be necessary. Jonathan Katab, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your work. We appreciate your analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Washington Post reports, Lindsey Graham introduces bill to ban abortions nationwide after 15 weeks. The Republican senator from South Carolina yesterday introduced a bill that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy nationwide, the most prominent effort by Republicans to restrict the procedure since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June with the Dobbs decision. For insight into this and other issues, we turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and a host of the podcast Public Agenda, Ray Baker. As always, Ray, welcome back. So grateful to be with you guys. Lindsey Graham says, I think we should have a law that the Fed, at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand except in case of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. 
And that should be where America is at. Forgiving Lindsey Graham for using that ending a sentence in a preposition. Uh, and you all remember good old Lindsey, the guy who in 2015 called Donald Trump a race-baiting xenophobic bigot. And he called Trump an equal opportunity abuser. But in 2018, he claimed that he had never heard him make a single racist statement. Ray Baker, what in the world is Lindsey Graham trying to do? And what does this say about where the Demo- where the Republican Party is on this issue of a woman's right to choose? <laughs> what it says about Lindsey Graham, that's up for anybody's discussion because the inconsistencies in Mr. Graham's rhetoric and in his uh, politics seem to be laid out quite bare with just those two examples. What this says about the Republican Party is the same thing that it's been saying about the Republican Party, quite honestly, since 1970s, perhaps even or sooner. They've not been able to deliver anything materially to their base. And so rather than hyping and engaging in the socioeconomic battles that are really left, right, and questions of material welfare and class, They've engaged in what we now can call sociocultural battles, which so many people who find themselves very sincerely uh, believing in the idea of life and perhaps their religious beliefs that lead them to believe that the unborn life is as sacred and valuable as the lived life. Uh, they now will find some support for Republicans, the same Republicans who, quite honestly, aren't de- delivering anything materially to their life. While also, and this is going to be important when we get into whether the question of the abortion ban, regardless of Lindsey Graham, regardless of the GEP, GOP, pardon me, why are there those in the United States who are so adamant about this? It is because it's going to be important for us to remember, particularly the class, the moneyed elite in the United States have a need for exploitable workers. We know that those who will be directly affected by upcoming abortion bans will be those lowest income and working class Americans. And if they continue to have more children, the belief then is that those special and particular elites will have a built-in exploitable labor force. And so a country that will murder its people for being black at a grocery store, a country that will murder its citizens because they are Jewish in a synagogue, a country that will murder their citizens because they want to go to elementary school, cannot also murder in the belief of those who think of this as some sort of a murderous attack as opposed to thinking of women's right to choose and a woman's body and autonomy, cannot also afford to have women who are lessening the number of human beings in our global, in our national population because of their personal choice. So if that means I have to be invasive to their bodies, so the logic would go. That's very consistent with what's happened in the United States. If we consider mass sterilization in Puerto Rico, if we consider the mass sterilization and the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, this is not new, and yet it just takes a different form. And because we can now mask it behind some sort of morality that some group of Americans legitimately do have, but nefariously those who finance some of this effort are not interested in. That's where we should focus our conversation when we're having this kind of talk. Now, I'm going to take a little different perspective, but hear me out here. This is what burns me up about the Democrats. You can't let these people back in power. When Which people? The, the Republicans. Okay. When Joe Biden ran, he knew what his people wanted. They knew. And he said, hey, vote for me and I will give you a public option and fix Obamacare. I will forgive all student loans. And I could go on and on. All these other things they said they were doing. Hadn't done one of them. And as a result of that, the Lindsey Grahams and these other people are going to get back in power. He didn't have to keep up all of his promises, but one or two of them, and they would have maintained power and they wouldn't have lost everything and put the 
the Republicans in power and be in a position for the Republicans in 2024. God knows if they run Biden, he ain't winning to put them in to have Trump or who's the DeSantis or whoever and have the House and have the Republic uh, and have the Senate and just, you know, throw the uh, uh, um, um Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and everything right into the right into the trash can. So it burns me up because they know what people want. They won't do it. And they let the Republicans get back in power. And then we have to have an argument about not an argument, but we have to scream and yell about what the Republicans are doing. It doesn't have to be. Anyway, go ahead. Before you respond, Ray, one thing, what you just laid out is exactly what's happening in Sweden. The right is coming back in power. It's just what's happening in Italy. Right. The right is coming back in power. It's just what's happening in France because those uh, elite governments on the left followed Joe Biden down this rabbit hole. Right. And it's coming to be winter in Europe. It's going to be cold. They're going to be hungry. And the right is saying, look at us. We you, can help. You set it up. Go well, ahead, Ray, Ray. Baker, your thoughts on all of that. Yeah, I, I'm not. I would disagree with the idea that Democrats are letting. Right? I mean, Fred Hampton teaches us that war is politics with bloodshed. Politics is war without bloodshed. So I think we have to, the same way we would on Sundays for those who watch football, we have to acknowledge that our opponents get paid too. So they are. Like, so I don't think that it's necessarily fair for us to say, well, Democrats are letting. What I think it's more communicative of is that neither of the two major parties in the United States and particularly what passes for center-left across much of Western Europe, are able to meaningfully or willing to meaningfully address the material needs and conditions of the vast numbers of people. And when their material benefits and resources and currency is not where they need it to be, then they will cleave to those social ones that they are more familiar with and comfortable. There are a group of people who believe that there is an inherent currency in being male, in being Christian, in being white and being heterosexual, things of this iteration. And there are those in the political sphere who know they cannot deliver material benefits to people who will then play to those cultural, social currencies or benefits to those people. And with so many people, as the one of you all alluded to just now, with winter coming, right? A bit of a head nod to Game of Thrones and House of Dragons. With winter coming, then, pe- then those elected officials are saying, let us give the people some sort of uh, c- cultural bread since we can't physically or not even can't since we are unwilling to give them material bread. Because I think it's important for us to be students of history. Dr. Wilmer, I know you know this, Garland, you are as well-read as anybody there is. To be students of history, we understand, particularly in the United States, that capital made so many concessions and acquiescences up until about 1970. The 1960s were a long, hot, and virulent time where there was serious consideration that the United States, as we understand it, as a capitalist, profit-driven market economy and in market ideology for how we interact with human beings, was no longer going to be so. And so I think what we're seeing now, and to paraphrase a 1980s movie to help get even younger after referencing the 60s and 70s, we're seeing a bit of the revenge of the nerds, except the nerds are the capital elite. And the revenge that they are exacting is engaging in these political cleavages that are very much along cultural lines. That's why we see the rise of fascist right in Europe. That's why we see the rise of the fascist right in the United States. They're engaging in these cultural lines because neither party, at least in the United States, has anything materially to offer the people of this country that can improve their wretched condition. Should there be a surprise at the conflict that the Dobbs decision has created on the electoral side. I think, you know, Republicans push this and Lindsey Graham is pushing this 
as they play, tried to placate uh, their ultra conservative base, but in you know, be careful what you ask for or be careful what you vote for because you just might get it. Now there seems to be an uh, energized opposition to all of this, and are we seeing that Republicans could be in a bigger dogfight come November second than they had anticipated? Oh, absolutely. Politically, the Dobbs decision has not immediately done for uh, Republicans on the federal level what they intended to do. However, Mitch McConnell's the mastermind, Lindsey Graham's the bumbling fool who says things out loud. Mitch McConnell continually says this is best decided by the state. Why does Mitch McConnell continually say that? Because he's well aware of how many states across the United States have gerrymandered voter suppression, and, and if we don't want to get into all the nuance, rigged their legislative assemblies to the point where there's a hyper-representation of far-right-wing GOP positions so they can pass almost everything they want to pass at the state level. And the goal of the federal government at that point is to get out of the way and let the states do as they will. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And so the more Lindsey Graham continues to talk, the more that we begin to politicize the Dobbs decision on a federal level, then that then hurts the aims of what we were looking for, what we're trying to have happen. And when I say we here, I'm speaking from the purview of the GOP right, particularly the far right, who we, some of us, would call the fastest racist right. They're interrupting the process of what will happen because the temperature of the country isn't actually in favor of nearly any of the GOP policies. And yet the goal of federal government is to get out of the way. If you are a Republican GOP strategist, get out of the way to let the states do the harm. But if you continue to have bad politics federally, then Democrats will be in and and continue to stay stay in power. And what we will see then is an effort from Democrats, if nothing else, to play defense at the federal level against the most egregious, of public policies that we're seeing at the state level. U.S. Bernie Sanders took to the Senate floor Tuesday to call out the for-profit healthcare industry for thwarting progress toward Medicare for All system that people in other developed nations enjoy. Follow the money, Sanders explains, why Medicare for All stalled in Congress. Your thoughts? Oh, that's that's the age-old American question, right? Why is the property written into the United States Constitution so much? Because there were so many folks who were kind enough not to say the word slavery, but wanted it very understood, you better not touch my slaves, right? And so follow the money has been an ad, age-old adage in the United, in United States politics. Even those who might consider themselves on the left, like uh, progressive organizations or labor unions, they pay to go to the fundraisers of the politicians that they support. Why? Because they want FaceTime with that politician. Why? Because they want to be able to tell that that politician, hey, when this bill comes up, we need you to block that or we want you to support this bill. And unfortunately, if one does not have the money to participate, one functionally is not a part of our American democracy, no matter what Modelo tells me about how important it is to go vote because some immigrant somewhere has the chance to vote for the first time. We have to be very keen and precise on what our language and meaning is and are. And so when Mr. Sanders takes to the floor to point to the wealthiest, uh, to point to the United States, excuse me, as having the wealthiest health care system, and I phrase it as the wealthiest, right? Because if we phrase it as most expensive, we think of it as a consumer problem. We think of it as wealthiest, then we think of it as an exploitative problem, which I think would be wise for Americans to think about in that framework, because it does not have to be this way. There are some things we have to pay for because they are for the collective good. 
This is not one of those things. We do not have to pay for it in this way. And the ways that we're paying for it are exploitative. Why? Because when there's a capitalist market economy that becomes the ideological centerpiece of a capitalist society, right, and the differences being one is a matter of merely commerce, another is the way we engage each other as human beings, then now every human is a commodity to be exploited, so says our healthcare system. And why would our healthcare system? Now, why would those who profit from it, why would they not pay a mere $10 billion of lobbying in order to maintain the status quo mm-hmm. and continue the greater than $10 billion worth of profits that they are getting from that? So rationally, it makes sense if we're being quite honest. And so we need to now have a larger American conversation about what is worth being commoditized okay. and what is not. But when you start from a premise of humans, whether you like them or not, right? And even if we want to get real, real historical, sorry, sorry, Dr. Wilm, I know, I know this ain't your class right now, but you know, <laughs> I studied under you for a while, so I want to raise my hand, let you know I did the reading. If, if we want to get real historical, then we even know that white Americans were then enslaved, and the whole reason that we have racial capitalism is because folks got too lazy to find out who I ought to be mean to and who ought not to be mean <laughs> to. So if I just look at them, that does have to work for me. Ray Baker, as always, greatly appreciate that analysis. You look, We look forward to having you back. And remember, if you're not exploitable, you're expendable in the minds of the capitalist system. Hey, Ray, thank you. Really appreciate it. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams reports more than 10,000 people sign a letter urging President Biden to reverse, quote, terrorism designation for Cuba, end quote. More than 10,000 people and 100 progressive advocacy groups have signed an open letter urging Joe Biden to reverse the Trump administration's terrorism designation for Cuba and to reinstate Obama-era policy with the Caribbean island. It is becoming patently more obvious to me that the U.S. is on the wrong side of history again. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a member of the Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace, member of the Black Working Class Centered Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland, founder of Liberation Through Reading and co-editor of the revolutionary African blog, Hood Communist, Erica Keynes. Erica, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, quote, your policies toward Cuba, this is from the letter, which have been more aligned with those of President Trump than President Obama are hurting the well-being of the Cuban people and run counter to the will of the majority of U.S. citizens. This is the letter organized by Code Pink. An important policy change that we urge you to take immediately is to remove Cuba from the list of state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, Erica, talk about the what many people see as conflicting and confusing how Joe Biden, having been the vice president during the Obama administration, being the vice president while this decision was made to uh, 
to relieve pressure on Cuba has now reverted to a more Trumpian policy than Trump. Right. Well, I think it's important to note, right, of the eight years that he was vice president, he spent a couple decades um, under, uh, you know, working within the U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress uh, while this blockade was carrying on. And I can't recall um, any real pushback against it while he, when he wasn't vice president. Um, and we see that um, Biden's campaign pledged to abandon Trump's failed approach to Cuba, uh, which included implementing more than 200 punitive policies following the Obama era, at normal, um, the Obama era efforts at normalizing um, relationships, and it also included the designation of state-sponsored terrorism. Well, we could see, along with many other campaign presidents, this one was another lie. Um, the Biden administration has kept the designation and has imposed even more sanctions in the recent months, especially um, intensifying Washington's 60-year embargo on the Caribbean island. Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you look at what's going on now, we've seen um, the uh, president of Mexico. We've seen the leaders in um, Venezuela, Nicaragua, now Colombia, um, all throughout South America, starting to really refresh and strengthen their um, their um, associations with Cuba. Recently, you know, Russia's been sending uh, wheat. It certainly seems as though there's kind of a new time in this world where other countries are appreciating Cuba's contributions to to world order and and I, I think there's a there's a, a bright future for Cuba. Your thoughts? Yeah, well I think the US government um in response to that is going to continue to amplify its war on the Cuban people um through political, economic and media efforts. Um the Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism isn't really dissimilar from blinking um last year having accused the world renowned medical team of human trafficking. These are consistent attacks. They are systematic subversions of Cuba. Um, and as such, the Cuban people, however, have not um, broken their revolutionary moral. And I think that's what we see these other nations and nation leaders responding to. Uh, because while under a 60-year blockade, continuous sanctions, even this uh, designation of state terrorism, the recent fire in Mentezas, to which the U.S. responded with condolences and an offer um, for technical support from their own exports, um, when all Cuba really needs is the end of the blockade to get proper supplies. Cuba's life expectancy has still outpaced the U.S. Um, so while the U.S. has made itself police of the region, and we're watching the region sort of collectify under this idea of our Americas, the U.S. is spending billions of dollars to deliberately impose suffering on the world while abandoning its own population from COVID policies to water systems, et cetera. Talk about the politics behind this in terms of the vote in Florida. Talk about, what you, you know, the, the perception that if America were to establish ties with Cuba, that would then be an admission that the Cuban Revolution was a success. <clears throat> and I don't know, particularly as the unipolar global hegemon has lost its grip, that being the United States, that in, in, in the minds of many sick Americans, the U.S. can ill afford to, to have revolutionary countries believe that revolution can be successful. Right. 
especially not revolutionary countries that are, what, 90 miles off the car. <laughs> and that'll take us also into a conversation about Haiti. But go ahead. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think that that that's really, really important. I think that you raise an important uh, point about the election season, um, because Florida um, is a pretty important state uh, election wise. And what we've noticed and what we've seen is that in order to gallivant, um, you know, uh, Republican voters, because the Democrats are so um, determined to reach across the aisle, um, this is one way they can do it. They would agitate China. They would agitate Russia. They would agitate Cuba um, to garner these votes, to um, garner support for the warmongering population, especially when we see the contentious uh, election in Florida happening now, where I think the um, one of the people running is being called Carla Marx for a remark that she made about Fidel years ago. And I think it was a passing remark when he passed. Um, so now she's being slated uh, as a communist, even though policy-wise, that's not even the case. Um, so I think that the administration is recognizing that playing this role with Cuba, um, strong-arming Cuba, being tough on Cuba, really is a um, electoral good for them. I'm going to throw this out to you. When I look at the data from both Obama elections, Obama won Florida both times. And when I look at the demographic results from Florida, if my memory serves me correctly, it was split generationally. The older Cubans voted Republican. Their children voted for Obama and hence helping Obama carry Florida. So I'm wondering if the Democrats are still using that same methodology or that same mentality about Florida, I think they're missing a great opportunity. And it's not policy towards Cuba that's going to carry Florida. It's abortion. It's the economy. It's a number of other it's 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 uh, school tuition and those types of things that are going to bring Florida solidly Democratic as opposed to making it a blue, a purple state. Right. And I, I, I agree to an extent. I think that um, when we look at the Trump era, I suppose uh, we could we talk about that. And even as recent as the the um, the protest last uh, July, uh, we see there is a, a very younger group. When we think about the role that, that Ned plays on the island to gallivant that younger population, that younger generation, um, and that rap song, I think there is space uh, where there are a younger generation of Cuban-Americans that do not know the history, um, have come under the older generation, and have an idea of communism and Cuba and and the island and are also uh, approaching it that way. I also think this, because we see China get being a much bigger player in this hemisphere, that the fear with Cuba is the same as the, as the fear with China, and that is the, an alternative um, uh, uh, economic structure. And the, here's the terrible thing with China, because w with Cuba, with Venezuela, they were able to suppress their economic system through unilateral sanctions and then say, well, it doesn't work because after they suppressed it. They're unable to do that with China. And now they see an alternative economic system that, at least for now, is working far better than neoliberalism. And that's the real threat they see from a China, a Cuba, a Venezuela, et cetera. Your thoughts, Erica? Right. 
I agree. I agree. Um, like I named all of the things that Cuba is facing because of U.S. policy, Cuba still is outpacing us with life expectancy. Um, and that says a lot. That says a lot, especially when we look at the COVID numbers uh, with China and, and the U.S. I think it says a lot about the way that the U.S. actually handles domestic policy and its own citizens as opposed to what is projected um, globally. Let's shift further and go over to Haiti. Violent protests flare up in Haiti over fuel price hikes, rampant crime. Uh, Residents of Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, sheltered at home on Tuesday as gunfire rung out, roadblocks and burning tires were placed along city streets and protesters threw stones in an angry response to expected new fuel price hikes and crime. And one thing the United States definitely can't have is a revolutionary Cuba and a revolutionary Haiti uh, off its coast. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting the way that uh, crime is talked about or violence. I don't think it's any dissimilar from the way that we uh, hear it talked about here in our own colonized communities, where there's just no actual conversation Um or uh, yeah, no conversation about the complexities of imperial policy, both domestic and global, that that affects or that results in these type of uh, crises. So what we are witnessing occurring in Haiti is ultimately the result of Western interference and neocolonial occupation that has not allowed the nation the right to self-sovereignty. So as such, the designated government, the de facto government, and the Western babysitters uh, that would include the UN, the OAS, and the core group, they have created an atmosphere of lawlessness and rebellion and, and chaos. And, and the other thing about the protests, and here's what they don't bring up, the Haitians have no government. They don't, they didn't choose Ariel Henry. They don't, when they, the last time they chose someone, the United States dragged them out of power. So the, all the protests they talk about, what would the people here in the United States do if they had absolutely, well, let me change that because we don't have much democracy, but at any, any rate, your thoughts, uh, we got about a minute. Yeah. No, I mean, that's important. How did Ariel Henry come into power? What was the process? I mean, this is a very unpopular uh, government, de facto government, and it's being met with nonstop demonstrations. And these are the conditions that colonial occupation of a people create. And that's why a Black Alliance of Peace, the Haiti America's team, we center Haiti. We understand clearly that Haiti is the region's laboratory for neocolonialism and neoliberalism and centuries-long counter-revolution against Black freedom and sovereignty. So neoliberalism didn't work in Chile. What makes America think that neoliberalism is going to work in Haiti? I'm not even concerned. I don't, I don't even think the U.S. is concerned with whether or not it would work. I think it's concerned with whether, what they can gain. I think it's concerned with mm-hmm. the um, expansion of its hegemony. Um, so that is why it plays such a major role in uh, what Haiti is and is not allowed to present itself, um, how Haiti is and is not allowed to engage in the world. Erica Keynes, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, The U.S. Against Assange, A Torrent of Evil. Few times has an empire demonstrated such cruelty and determination to destroy a single man as the U.S. has in its crusade to silence Julian Assange, the activist who uh, revealed the human rights abuses and permanent transgression of international law in indulged in by the U.S. throughout the world. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So, interviewed by La Jornada during their visit to Mexico, John and Gabriel Shipton, the WikiLeaks founder's father and half-brother, respectively told of the inhumane treatment reserved for Julian Assange in the UK's maximum security prison where he's fighting the near-complete attempt by the U.S. to extradite him under the 1917 Espionage Act, which he could be condemned to 175 years in prison for doing what every journalist does. Uh, Quote, if Julian falls, journalism falls, according to his father, John Shipton. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. Well, John Shipton's absolutely right. It's stuck in the charges against Julian, uh, specifically in the 18th charge that isn't an Espionage Act charge, the one that's under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of uh, 1984 or 5, I think. Uh, essentially, it governs how people are allowed to behave on the internet, and it makes um, well, it makes investigative journalism possible. <laughs> and if uh, Julian Assange is convicted of this, which it certainly seems likely to be, given that the Eastern District of Virginia and Espionage Court is a they, they insult the kangaroos to call it a kangaroo court, um, but it's a, a rubber stamp agency. Um, between, you know, holding and, and a supermax prison, um, it disallows for basic protections for a source. If a journalist can't guarantee a source protection, if the source itself has no protections, there is zero incentive to come forward with information that's critical to journalists so that they can publish it and allow us to, to have a better understanding of how the world works. Yeah, and and um, the other thing, I mean, there are so many areas where the Assange for Assange to be found guilty would be so destructive to our society. And another, to me, one of the other really big ones, notwithstanding how important the First Amendment issues are, is the fact that the government, uh, you could say, intercepted or watched his meetings with his defense. In any court, in any civilized society, when the prosecution is able to w- intercept and watch the defense m- in meeting with the defendant, that case has to be thrown out. If that is not thrown out, we have nothing left of a—we don't have much now, but we have nothing left of a reasonable um, uh, uh, court system. Your thoughts? Well, what we have is a brand new legal precedent because you're you're technically not violating your own laws if you can turn around and say that you've established a brand new precedent, which is what they're trying to do with the Assange case, not just in terms of uh, the CIA spying on his legal team, but in terms of all of the the blatant disregarding of uh, local, of state, of federal, of international law. 
that has taken place in the targeting and persecution and uh, imaginary or false prosecution of Julian Assange. Vanessa Baretzer, the magistrate who oversaw the hearings uh, in 2020, um, cited on January 4th, 2021, when she eventually denied the U.S. the right to extradite Julian Assange, uh, cited a CNN article, gentlemen, as to the justification for why it was okay for the CIA to spy on anyone in their legal meetings. She cited a CNN article written well after the fact. Now, I, I don't know. I, I am not a legal scholar, so I'm going to ask you guys, maybe you know, is there another case this high profile where a blatant piece of CNN propaganda was used as justification for a, a legal ruling? Uh, I don't think so. No, not that I know of. Although it sounds to me like there's going to be a whole lot of them in the future based on what's happening here. Yeah. And again, if you can make it a precedent, then it just opens the floodgates for these types of prosecutions going forward. And this is what is so dangerous to journalism, because Julian Assange is right now the only line of defense that the rest of journalism as a profession has from being openly targeted, being dragged out of their home, being thrown into prison, all for printing, again, verifiably accurate information. Well, it's not only it's not only verifiably accurate information, it's information that mainstream American sources like The New York Times were using themselves. In, as basis for their own articles once upon a time. And now that, and, and to me, the fact that the, the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN have turned their backs on Assange lets you know very clearly where so-called journalism is headed if the government wins and if the government is able to extradite him the fact that they have already turned their backs on him lets you know where where this world is headed. Is that is that hyperbole? No, it's not because we we watched as uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, the Guardian, there all these outlets that partnered with WikiLeaks to win awards threw away a man that they knew uh, to to be 100% verifiably accurate in his reporting, regardless of what they think about him as an individual. The, the reporting and the publishing itself, impeccable. And from the most of what we know, Julian Assange has Asperger's kind of hard to work with, like a little bit of a jerk sometimes, but that's the extent of it. Well, that's okay, but they threw away that guy as a standard bearer and then picked up, what was his name? Siggy Thordeson, the convicted (laughs) pedophile who lied to the FBI so he could go commit more crimes so he could get immunity. That's who they traded Julian Assange for, a convicted pedophile. There's the same thing with Prince Andrew. They're doing the same thing with Prince Charles or King Charles or whatever. They're protecting the worst among us at the expense of the people trying to shine some light on Garland, the, the primary element of journalism or the fundamental element of journalism is the primary source. As a journalist, you are supposed to go to the primary source and build from there. 
Julian Assange, through WikiLeaks, provided the primary source. Emails and other types of correspondence from the U.S. and other government officials that are involved in whatever particular circumstance was being investigated. And hence, Washington Post, CNN, New York Times. Steve, your point about about his journalism being impeccable made me think it's because he was printing and publishing the primary sources of the information. Yeah, that's the con. The, the entire concept of WikiLeaks is is incredibly simple and very very elegant. Uh, Julian Assange referred to it as scientific journalism. You take the raw data as much as possible. You take the primary source information. You vet it. <laughs> you know, and you take as long as you need to to vet it. But if it's if it checks out, if it's in the public interest, and it's never been printed before. It gets printed in WikiLeaks, and that's the process. And then when you have access to the primary source material, the rest of, of journalism and pundits and what can work together or separately to figure out how best to interpret it and how best to present it to the public, it, however they want to spin it. But the point being is that it's already out as effectively as a, a published scientific journal. I think you also have to add this with what's been going on recently with uh, uh, the guy Mayorkas, who is the um, secretary of Mayorkas over at the DHS, has been doing all this talking of domestic violent extremists, the threat and, you know, the the dark Brandon speech. I've heard Biden's speech called the dark Brandon speech uh, recently. And that is that they're looking in the same way they're looking at Assange for telling the truth as some kind of a terrorist. Remember that Hillary said, can't we just drone drone him? People here should be concerned because those who speak out can be viewed and likely will be viewed in the same light. we got about a minute and a half. They're openly saying that they're trying to formulate uh, a, a some sort of guidance to protect individuals or to prosecute individuals as information terrorists, uh, both at home and abroad. We've seen the, the targeted kill list that the Ukrainian government has put out. Journalists are included in that. We know that it's been open season on journalists since uh, they trafficked Julian Assange from the embassy to Belmarsh prison. This is not a time to be shy about any of this. In fact, if you are a part of the independent media and you're listening right now, you need to be louder than you've ever been in your support of Julian Assange. In fact, we have just about a minute left. And Steve Garland mentioned the fact that the CIA was spying on him while he met with his attorneys. Well, you can never forget that Donald Trump asked the question, why don't we just kill the guy? And there were discussions within the United States government about kidnapping him and killing him. When the United States was trying to convince the British government, oh, you can send him here to us because we're not going to subject him to the death penalty. No, we'll just try to kill him before he gets here. He'll never get here to get the death penalty. That was the point. Steve Poikinen, as always, man, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Take care, gentlemen. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.